Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders, CEOs, and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. Uh, he has been working in multinationals, startups across Europe, across the US. Uh, we have been also, uh, full disclosure, working together in the past month. So it's, it's with great pleasure that uh, I welcome to the show Rasmus Wolst, the CEO at LMS365. Rasmus, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mike. And uh, pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to, uh, to have a good conversation with you about startup life, about founder life, about the uh, scale of life, and uh, really looking forward to it. Thank you, absolutely. And let's start for the ones who don't know you. Uh, you have an amazing career. Uh, let us know more uh, what, what uh, has been your journey and how you ended uh, at LMS365. So my journey is nearly two decades long now, so I won't bore everyone <laughs> with all of, the, uh, all of the details of where I've been. I've been part of exits to the tune of a billion dollars. I've part of been part of raising funds. I've been part of starting businesses with no, no revenue whatsoever, scaling them to about 10 million. Um, I've been part of uh, very large corporations with about $300 million in revenue under my, uh, under my um, leadership. Um, I started up in product management and has been fortunate enough that over my career, I've got to try product management. I've tried to run sales. I've run, I've run marketing. I've tried to run strategy as well. I've run development organizations. So a very broad set of skills throughout those 20 years. And then I think that's what's prepared me for becoming a CEO, which we can talk about a little bit later. But I do think that knowing a lot of the disciplines in the business has helped uh, tremendously when you go on that journey. So uh, that's the um, that's the long and short of a, a 20 odd year career uh, that I can uh, that I'll, I'll, right. I'll share with you as an outset. And it also helps because we have, as you said, you have been serving companies of different sizes in different stages of maturity. So you understand the kind of the enterprise mindset, what it is like to work at mindset at uh, enterprise in, in different functions and uh, different realities. Also, it's as a builder, as a scaler uh, in startups and, and, and scale ups. So that, that's a very nice perspective and also a, a multicultural uh, experience that also helps a lot uh, when it takes to, to lead a global company. Yeah, and I think on that note, I've been fortunate enough to, to lead teams everywhere from Japan over Singapore, Australia, India, Germany, Luxembourg, Denmark, the UK, Brazil, North America. Um, so Super essentially nice. really global, actually understanding how your leadership actually impacts a number of different cultures and the way you have to I'm, I'm Danish by origin, and you obviously come with a cultural background and how you lead and how you think about leadership. And then right. sometimes you actually have to challenge yourself also to make sure that that actually functions in a cultural setting. Um, that's that's absolutely one of the, uh, the key challenges, as you say. And then I think also now uh, with LMS uh, being around 15 million ARR, it's a scale-up journey, but it always helps to have seen things run at scale past experiences with uh, with with Oracle, with Nokia, and with uh, Cineverse were like billion dollar right. enterprises. Um, it actually helps to see where you could where you can take the uh, the business, and then obviously, as you say, 
then keeping the cultural mindset along as well because we've just gone 24 hours 24 time zones almost with lms 365 with the acquisition of evergreen two weeks ago um so we do have to keep a global mindset of that which is a company based in in australia uh, and, and of course the a great part of the business is also in the us where you are uh based today uh in in san francisco correct that is correct. The, uh, the, tra the, the journey has also taken the family, uh, which right. includes my wife and, and two teenage kids, um, to live six years in Luxembourg, now a little over six years in, in uh, San Francisco. Uh, so also an international journey for the family right. and for, for kind of the base, which also for many, I think when we talk about scale-ups, we often talk about PQLs, MQLs, sales closed, the cap ratios <laughs> and all of that. And then one key thing when you almost turning 50 is to make sure that the base is absolutely stable and it's a good base and that the home environment as well has a, a level of support for what you want to be doing because whether you're a founder, whether you're a scaler That's or whether you're a, a CEO at a large, organization um it does matter a lot uh, both for your performance at work and also how you come home and that you don't take work with you home right. that kind of destroys the mood from a bad day or anything like that <laughs> and then uh, i see that you are traveling a lot so being able to balance uh, all the stuff in in your family life in your personal life also having time for yourself and at the same time serving the business it's it's not an easy uh, balance to do uh, it takes a lifetime to learn <laughs> it does and it take it takes some i mean that's that's an advice to a, a lot of a, a younger myself right yeah, um, I've traveled a lot throughout my career in one of a lot of my business. I was lucky enough to have customers in almost every single country, bar one. And so I've always traveled a lot. And that means you need to make sure that on the and I think that's it's actually true for a lot of founders as well. When you start out, you're on this journey. You want to be successful in business and you tend to forget that, hey, this life actually needs to be balanced between what you do for yourself, what you do for your family and what you do for your business. And often you tend to, tend to end up spending 100% of your time on business because you do need to travel. There are always people who want you. The next VC call is important because that might be your $20 million uh, investment, all of those types of things. Uh, so actually being mindful about how you, you strategize that. And I can only be super thankful to the whole family for having been really good at, at making these arrangements and and figuring out how we do that. And then also make sure that you keep in touch when you're actually on the road, uh, right. because otherwise it's a very far, far cry from, from, from home when you're just flying around and trying to be with the teams or with customers or all of that, which to me is important. And the time zone differences, uh, also being able to, to manage. I never, I'll never learn how to be good at that. I think that's still <laughs> Awesome. So let, let's go into LMS 365. So would you like to present to the audience uh, what is the business about, uh, in what stage of growth? You have talked that it's around 15 million plus in ARR at the moment, uh, headcount, etc. So a little bit of uh, an introduction of, of the company that you are leading today. Yeah, so LMS 365 is a learning management platform. It sits uniquely within the Microsoft ecosystem, so it utilizes all of Microsoft's uh, components, whether that's finding our application in Teams, whether that's taking your training within Teams. So we really talk about 
how learning meets the user and being user-centric in terms of, of what we do. Um, that has served us very well as a scaling platform because we utilize all of the Microsoft scaling tools because Microsoft is not just a technology platform, it's also a partnership. Uh, there's a whole channel that you, can ex uh, that you can use and that you can use to your advantage. There's the collaboration with Microsoft and all of that. And it means for many IT organizations, there's a very simple product market fit. The business today is a global business, as you said, with six offices around the world. Um, we're around 160 people, um, past 15 million in ARR, and we got to that in a bootstrap fashion. So this means that um, scaling the business and managing cash and managing, uh, you could say, the LTV to CAC ratio uh, has been done very, very well. Um, if you want to, kind of the sweet spot for the business is yep. around 300 to 5,000 users, typically an L&D manager together with a CIO. So when organizations start to have a CIO and an L&D manager, we mm -hmm. often become a solution of choice because they want to leverage the investment they already have on Microsoft, the security measures, all of that. They don't have to retrain users. So that's what has enabled the product market fit to be super strong. And obviously, scaling within an ecosystem with 300 million users on Microsoft Teams, you don't run out of sales addressable market um, immediately. Let's put it that right. way. <laughs> even even if we are proud to have um, to have uh, 1,300 customers and now 700 on our product-led growth initiatives or our freemium platform, so make that around 2,000 customers and, and around a million and a half users that's still not even a percentage of Microsoft's entire user, user base. So there's plenty of sales addressable market, even though we feel we've been successful. Uh, that's really, really rare to, to see a company who is able to get to 15 million uh, plus ARR uh, in a bootstrap fashion, as, as you describe it. Uh, of course, you have not been uh, with the company since the beginning. You, are, uh, you joined us as professional CEO, but uh, Speaking with, with the ones who have been there during this journey, what, what did excite you about, about LMS 365 to decide to, to join to, to lead uh, LMS 365 in, the new, in the, this new growth stage, let's say? Yeah, so first, let's, let's, let's acknowledge the people who, who came before me and who are still with me. So if you take the company journey, it started out as a, as a SharePoint type of, of application being delivered on-premise, which is a tough, tough ask and tough, uh, tough platform to scale. Um, 2016, 2017, Freddie Bang, who's our CTO currently, uh, I don't know whether that's an epiphany. Uh, I don't think it is for him because the way he thinks is actually in scalable frameworks. And I think that's a lesson for all startup CTOs, actually. I'll, so that's why I'll share this. So Freddie came back and said, we will not actually, we shouldn't be doing this. This will not get us scale and we will not be able to replicate sales. Um, so Freddie's decision to basically move this into Microsoft Teams, which obviously means you're giving up your own user experience, which means if you compete with the ones we compete and there are companies we certainly respect like Duchevo, they can deliver a, a user experience, which we can't because they have freedom of choice for the, the application. However, the scaling model and the user centricity. That's what, what Freddie basically banked on at that time. And then he moved the whole thing off of, of on-premise and onto the cloud. And that is in all essence, the pivotal decision within, uh, within the business. 
following that you can say oh that's easy that's an easy decision to make now knowing that it's a 300 million user base in 2016 that was not an obvious choice uh that was absolutely not an obvious choice but that's number one choice that's made the the scale-up journey uh possible and i think for me um advice on that is for a lot of founders to we especially on the technical side i've been fortunate enough to work with some really phenomenal technical people but most often you tend to solve issues um rather than thinking scalable frameworks so the one lesson taken back from freddie is that thinking scalable frameworks because it doesn't only come with the technology it also comes with a distribution it also mm -hmm. comes with with a set of, of tools that enables you to not have a lot of technical depth so that's number one that means it's a ubiquitous market and that means if you hit product market fit you will essentially have access to the whole market which is which is a, a pivotal decision i think That's and funny. and with freddie you should also mention that that last vestergaard and, and and robert have also been with us for nearly 10 years and been part of scaling the business which i think helps that we have the old knowledge and and the strong base in terms of understanding what the market does and the, that the technology does and then adding components to uh, to the business and i think for me joining as a professional ceo the discussion you had with the team and with me prior to joining i'll compliment the board on being very very focused on um, on cultural fit because you can mm -hmm. also come in from silicon valley most of them are still in aarhus denmark right um, you can come in and break the whole thing, but I think that's been a, again a lesson for boards when they look for professional um, uh, CEOs, be that CFOs, be that whatever skill you need to add to the team. Think about the cultural fit because that's essentially how how the how the scale up has happened, and that's that's what what we're looking at going uh, going forward. And back to your question about what excited yeah. me, yeah. obviously. Let's start with with something very very plain. I've been in cybersecurity. I've been telecoms all of uh, for mm -hmm. a lot large portion of my life, and especially with cybersecurity, you figure out that you're selling doom and gloom because everything's going to break tomorrow. Everything's going to blow up, and <laughs> and and it's going to be someone's going to steal your data the way minute you look away. So one thing is the cohesiveness of the business. Um, in terms of delivering something that helps people grow. So first and foremost, the why of the business is really, really strong. Then the business metrics are obviously, as I alluded to when we started the conversation, uh, yeah. are really, really strong. Um, and deserves the opportunity to actually see whether or not that cannot be taken on a journey, which we've dubbed always to unicorn, uh, basically mm -hmm. saying we can absolutely do this step up. And when, um, the headhunting company that called me i've known them for more than 10 years so they literally told the business you can probably talk to rasmus but he's also probably going to say no <laughs> and when i saw this opportunity it was one of those i do speak to um speak to founders who come to silicon valley on behalf of innovation center denmark and stuff like that and i always say look the way europeans danes often look at businesses with a long is with a much more longevity type of view you want to build a long-term sustainable all of that right. type of business and seeing how you compete in the us whether that's my kids going to school competing for everything 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 <laughs> you just grow up competing right they 
it's ingrained in the American DNA to compete. And the whole Silicon Valley, okay, if it, if it works, give it a spark and see if you can't, if you can't uh, use your window of opportunity to get there. That was actually for me the perfect fit for where LMS three six five were in their in their in their in their life journey, and I think if I wouldn't have said yes to this, I should stop doing uh, uh, speeches about uh, how to how to do this Im impetus type of of growth and, and blitz scaling, and right. adding that with the, with the mentality from Europe for slash Denmark of of actually of having longevity in the business. So. So that's that. That's what attracted me. And then obviously you can go through. You said it. It's bootstrap. The CAC to LTV ratio is all all there. And then I felt that we had opportunities to add to to the product portfolio. As I said to begin with, we're strong in the three hundred to five thousand user user um, segment. And that's mm -hmm. actually quite contrary to a lot of scale ups, right? You start trying to do product led growth because that's the most economical. That's what right. VCs like to see. It's scalable, all of that. So actually for us, we've scaled down and said, okay, could we add a product-led growth initiative underneath? And you absolutely can, which means you get access to another, a different market uh, at a much more economical setup than our current CAC and LTV ratio. And that's super exciting that you can even add go-to-market models to the existing business and then say, okay, can this grow? Can this become something different? And on the top end, uh, as of um, as of uh, Microsoft's fiscal 2023, we've also become top tier partner, which means that there are some sales incentives within Microsoft that makes us very attractive for Microsoft salespeople to to push. Um, and that means we can actually add enterprise sales through Microsoft, which, if you think about it, is obviously an opportunity that lots of scale up startups do not get. That you have a core market which is solid. And you can then add go-to-market models in the uh, in the product-led growth segment, which I always see as kind of below what we do currently. And I crudely yeah. call 300 to 5,000 uh, people an SMB type of uh, play. It's probably a SMB plus SME. And then in the enterprise space, you can add a you can add a model where instead of trying to do that yourself, making mistakes that I've been part of in my life as well, where you think, okay, we'll hire some some uh, VP sales who has a Rolodex mm -hmm. that can go into a high-end enterprise and sell. It, it just isn't that easy, right? And you're hoping for that $200,000 ARR deal or half a million dollar ARR deal, and it doesn't come. And then how do you, how do you recoup from that, right? Here you actually get access to working with the probably best enterprise sales force in the world to, to get to some of their largest customers, which again, makes it the scaling journey super exciting it's interesting to see because every single stage of growth we need to crack the the growth plateaus and understand to kind of have a mindset of exploitation and exploration right there are always new markets to launch new products to launch new segments to launch and we need to find product market fit in those and understand what are the ones that will move the needle and allow us to get from the 15 million to the 30 million, from the 30 to the 50 and the 50 to the, the 100 million. And uh, 
theoretically, it seems easy to talk about it, but then to understand what to do and how to execute it and how to bring the team with us. It's uh, an organization already with 160 plus people that will, of course, increase headcount uh, over the years. It is a huge challenge in terms of managing culture and, uh, and change. And do you have any, any tips about how, how do we come in as a professional CEO in a company that has been doing things in a, in a, in a, in a, in a certain way with a lot of merit, as, as, as you said, but of course, in order to get to, to the next stage of growth, there are stuff that we need to unlearn as leaders and to start doing. And it, it, it is very uncomfortable for anyone, even for the, the most senior leaders uh, in any organization. Let, let me try and, and before I answer the question in full, I'll <laughs> give one scaling tip uh, and then actually then answer the question because I think they sit in. Great. One of the things that you also see in the scale up journey especially trying to get to new markets is that then you place people, right? You hire a VP sales plus some customer success and whatever, and you try to go into the US or you do that and try to go into Asia Pacific. Yeah. Thinking that you can, if you're a European company, replicate the model you have in another, uh, in another geography. And obviously, in addition to the business model, you want to try and scale the geography models. Mm -hmm. And this business has actually been really smart about this. We do have a chairman. We do have some employees who've been part of a, another scale-up journey where they use partnerships. Um, and thinking about the Microsoft ecosystem, obviously you have a lot of preset partnerships that you can use to start your distribution in, for instance, the US, in Australia, in Germany. Nice. So we've basically put in people on ground, not on our own but through partnerships and started a distributorship in the US. And then we've actually acquired that business back. And now that is part of our, our embedded organization. We've done the same in Germany, and now we've done the same in Australia. And just to give you a sense of what that is, US obviously being the largest Microsoft market in the world, Germany is number three, Australia is number four. So without ever really putting people on the ground, We've grown in their three largest markets. We obviously haven't done anything in the UK, which is the second largest. Um, but through M&A, um, which is a tough act to do for a scale-up or a startup, we've actually built market coverage geographically uh, across the last three years. So every year for the last three years, we've made an acquisition. And that's a baseline for your conversation, right? So. Yep. That's, that's within the COVID timeframe, which means people haven't seen each other. The first time the executive team met in three years was last week. Uh, that's the first time they've seen each other physically for three years all together. Right? So obviously having this acquisition strategy where you've acquired geographies and all of that, all being part of a different company and a different company culture, you absolutely need to level set that so we get the same level of methodology, you get the same way of talking about things, you get the same language, you get the same priority. You remember to uh, help your teammates or your colleagues at the leadership level, you remember to communicate into the organization in a proper, in, in, uh, in a proper manner, also recognizing what everyone else is doing, all of those types of things. So for me, the first installment of that is, is implementing OKRs across the team. We've started for a quarter with the leadership team just to get them comfortable with having a common language. Because again, collecting piece, bits and pieces across the, uh, across the world 
who has different languages, you start with a con concise and, and, and same way of talking about things. Right. And then when you start to do that, you also start to have common priorities. You start to have, because you also get into a situation where you as a CEO, we could use to be able to do these all hands and just, hey, well, just on an afternoon in Denmark, if we only had the US, we could kind mm -hmm. of manage time zones. Now we start in Sydney, Australia, and you can't manage time zones anymore. Exactly. So you also need the team at, we, at 160 people. We're also where the leadership team needs to be the outlet for what's happening at the business. If you only rely on the CEO, it becomes like a, a, an over-the-top parroting, right? That, hey, here's mm -hmm. what's happened. Close the session. We're gone, right? Yeah. You need that, um, that level of information to, to transpire into the organization very quickly. And for me, the last piece of that is that that requires a lot of transparency because you want your leaders to be seen in the organization as they're part of the key decisions. You want them to understand why some of these things actually are decided or prioritized the way it does. And it requires that you are very transparent with the team in terms of what's going on and how, how we're going to deal with things. And, and also requires a lot from the team because they also need to be open to say, Oh, I actually, I'm actually not sure I understand this, uh, this new scale-up framework. I'm not sure because you're basically pushing that to, to the next level and the next limit, right? right? And that requires trust between CEO, leadership team, team members, also when you scale it out into the organization. And I think that's an important lesson as you scale. Uh, your communication to everyone becomes a bit less, but your trust in the organization has to become a lot more. Yeah. And in terms of bringing everyone together in the same direction and making them feel that they are part of the definition of the strategy, of the vision, of, of the different pillars of, of the strategy, um, any tips there? So do you, do you talk with them a lot one-on-one -on -one in, in group settings? Uh, you try to be in person with them. So for, for again, for, for founders and CEOs that are seeing their companies to grow and they need to bring and some critical elements to, to the different uh, seats of the organization. And of course, at, at this stage of the organization, and of course, we have worked in large enterprise companies, so we have a lot of skills uh, there. Uh, all of them have their own strong personalities, uh, and sometimes they, they want to do in a certain direction, and it's difficult for, for them to, to work as a team and, and commit, disagree, and commit. Uh, it's it's super healthy to disagree, but at, at the end of the day, we need to make a decision and then commit in, in, in into that direction, right? So I that's a very, very valid point. I, I always believe that you shouldn't take the strength out of everyone, right, by making them uniform. The, the thing that needs to be uniform are the priorities. If your leadership style is different from mine and the way you lead your team, actually helps right. the team better. There's a huge difference between running a marketing team or a development team. There's a huge way difference in terms of how you communicate to the finance team compared to a sales team. Um, so you don't want to take the strength out of people, but you want to make sure that they have a foundation where the way they talk, the, the subjects they talk about are actually, um, are actually the same, right? So for me, it's a lot about delivering a priority framework for the business, because otherwise, this is where it goes wrong, right? Your leadership style can be whatever it needs to be to lead your function the best way. But if your priorities are now also the way you think they are the best for you, 
then it goes wrong because then Meta on your side or Lars or whatever functions that we have on this next to you will go, why is Mike doing this? I'm doing this. And then you have the, disali- uh, the, the disagreement, the misalignments where marketing delivers a campaign that product hasn't built yet or sales thinks they're going to sell something. And then so delivering a framework in between, I think, is 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 paramount to making sure that that happens. And I think you can even as a CEO, founder, scale upper, make that a um, make that a constraint, deliberate mm-hmm. constraint. Um, there's actually a Danish author, also owner of a Premier League football club and stuff like that, who has a whole uh, talk about how you deliver constraint management. But if you ask people to do a lot of stuff, they will just do, okay, fine, we can do whatever. And the accountability goes down. But if you constrain yourself to maybe two, three things where you need to execute, you need to be good. You need to show the organization we have delivered as an executive team. We've delivered as an organization. You need to show the market, the VCs, your owners, we've delivered as an organization. If you're willing to put that out there and say, I can do this, it also feels much more gratifying when you do it, but it also puts the focus and the accountability on the team, team, right? And it forces you to, and I think actually it's a really great, it's a really great lesson for scale-ups because then you want to be doing a lot of things. Yeah. Right? There, there's everything. Hey, build a new product. Go, go to a new market. Find That's a new VC. All of that, and and in that you lose the accountability for the things that matter. Yeah. And the the way actually, a funny anecdote from this. Um, his name is actually also Rasmus Rasmus Ankersen. He talks in one of his books about a, a, a number one Danish badminton player who obviously would have no competition just walking around in a badminton hall in Denmark trying to play people. But he would mm-hmm. essentially put a thousand Danish kroner next to the net, say, I am down 20 to, 20 to uh, zero, and mm-hmm. I'll play any player. And if you win, you get the thousand. Because what that really did was it focused him on his entire game. He couldn't make a single mistake because then he would lose money, meant he could play against someone who was a lot weaker but still he needed every single move to be concentrated, to be focused, to be absolutely precise. And I think the thousand kroner is just a monetary expression of actually setting your OKR so that it's, it's focused. You know you need to execute at the best level. And I think that's, um, he has a lot more uh, great examples, but I just think it shows that if you're able to do this, you 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 absolutely focus your your energy if you he had started like zero zero see if you can beat me he would have been able to do like sloppy sloppy playing and all of that all along and that's what i think happens if you run 20 different priorities and the organization also becomes oh does this really matter so so that's that's a framework for me and then if again okr for me is is the way you built that common language and that priority and that focus and that uh, that hunger to be good at a few things. Exactly. The, the importance of radical focus and having the team to define uh, how to measure what matters in order to get to the next stage uh, of growth and how to be accountable for achieving that next stage uh, of growth, right? Also, in other words, uh, defining what success means 
for the team. And of course, when we are part of the definition of what success means, we are much more accountable and committed and engaged on making that happen and, and much more uh, inspired. Great. We have we have talked here a little bit about decisions, about scalability, ecosystem, uh, product. Uh, you also talked about the go-to-market um, approach in terms of product-led growth versus um, sales-led growth. We also talked about a bit about team, culture, leadership, um, and of course, there is always a, a not topic that founders love to 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 listen, uh, which is about fundraising. Um, of course, at this stage, you you were able to get here without needing to uh, fundraise, um, but you have been you have experience in other companies before uh, fundraising. Is there any tips that you'd like to share with with founders that are listening to to us? Let Let's just start with it's hard work. A lot <laughs> of the stories in the uh, when you read the press sounds like oh this is just I'll I'll just go out there and then it will work. It's hard work, so prepare. That's number one. Don't expect that on a, on, a, on a brilliant idea and no metrics, you'll get there. Know your metrics, be ready for it. Be ready when they ask, be concise about what you want to have out of the VCs. And don't be afraid to also ask them to help you. I mean, if you go through the KPIs of the business here, mm -hmm. there are a lot that are way above, uh, that are in the 90% percentile. I mean, our capital efficiency, our deal values, our sales growth numbers for the stage we're at, all of that is in the top percentile. There is no company with everything being in the top 90 or the 90 plus percent percentile, right? Right. Maybe there are, but they will be even rarer than, than unicorns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so accept that you have weaknesses. It's like everything in life. Accept that there are weaknesses and accept that those weaknesses you need to work on and be open about that. Most VCs actually like to hear that they can come in and help. If you're Superman or Superwoman who have already figured out the whole thing, the VCs will go, okay, so what's the opportunity to actually optimize this business? Remember, right. they need to make the business do even better than what it does today. And some is a scale, scale journey, of course, of giving you more money. So if they can see that there are scalable frameworks like, the, like a, a, a customer acquisition cost, which is earned mm -hmm. back in 11 months, you can invest in that. But they obviously ask you to do better. So for me, I'm, I'm always saying, look, we're at the infancy of our product-led growth journey. So obviously ask the VC, are you good at that? Are your operational teams good at that? Can they help you? Um, our net retention rate can absolutely be better because at this lower end, actually what we try to offload into product-led growth, smaller organization trying to implement learning, some of that that starts and then it uh, in we and then it disappears again so our net nrr could absolutely go up instead of being being try to hide it as a weakness and all of that most of the teams that many of these vcs have they have optimization teams that can help you with that they have best right. practices they have playbooks and i think that we want to as founders as ceos all of that we want to be be seen as perfect i think it's a human nature thing i don't think it's it's anything particular, but you want to be praised for your results. You want to be, but be open about where your weaknesses are. Most VCs will see through it anyway. When they ask for your ARR file, exactly. they'll go, oh, that's, <laughs> that's the issue. That's the issue. That's the issue. You're being pushed through like a sausage manufacturing machine and a result <laughs> comes out at the other end with a, with a whatever's 
uh, X valuation, right? Um, but if you're open about that and say, this we can improve, this we can improve, and ask them, can you help me improve this? Because then they're also the right partner. Remember, this is the partner you, we talked about my family life, but this is also a partner you choose for a long time. Exactly. And the easy, the easy times where you have good numbers, everything's working, everyone's your best friend. I've also seen the other way you're fundraising on the back end of your, your burn rate is too high. You're running against the wall, all of that. And now it becomes panic. And now you have to, as a CEO, founder, scale upper, navigate waters where everyone's uncertain and everyone's mm -hmm. not necessarily your best friend because then all of a sudden it becomes a matter of how is my investment doing more than how is Rasmus doing or whatever your name is as, right. as, as the, at the helm. So making those agreements and those handshakes up front means a lot in the long run. Mm -hmm. and, and this is really important. And I've uh, witnessed you managing super well the different stakeholders and involving the different stakeholders, namely with the leadership team, the board, etc. cetera. I, I see that you have a lot of care about being able to keep good relationships and also incentivizing the relationships between the teams and, and the board. Uh, and improving the cross-functional um, collaboration, and it's 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 interesting to understand that we need really uh, as CEOs to almost serve a three-sided or four-sided or fifth-sided marketplace where we have different stakeholders with different interests, and we need to align all those interests to be able to fulfill the purpose and the vision of the company, and to have everyone happy uh, at the end of the day, which is not. An easy task, right? <laughs> and be able to survive among all those interests uh, from different stakeholders. I, it, it's something you only realize when you do become the CEO, I think. And I think it's, uh, I'm happy I had a long career before I took up the step to CEO because it would allow you to actually have seen things that you didn't have to manage yourself to begin with. Um, but yeah, the stakeholder management as a CEO um, is tough, especially, and that's also back to the OKRs and delivering on other promises because otherwise the business becomes singular focus on ARR. And ARR kind of means, what, was this quarter great? If you're 10% below on sales or something like that, it just becomes an awkward, um, it becomes an awkward board meeting, right? Exactly. But sometimes also remember to take in the wins. If you've then made your um, yep. invoicing and collections a lot better, you actually have some other things to, again, tell, oh, I may have lost that particular game 1-0, but I've improved a number of functions. So the next time I play the next quarter, I'll actually be up again, and then I'll have some functions and processes and all of that that are better. Um, so remember to blend that because if you only have one KPI and that's the only thing, it will always be the most important, by the way, anyway, yeah. the financials, um, but just balance that out with some more, some more things that you've become better at. You won't see an athlete also, if they lose the game, they will know we've improved on defense or we've improved on offense. We've done this and this better. So next exactly. game, we will actually believe that we can be better because it's both the board, it's the investors, the owners. And the, the, the company that needs to believe, oh, we may have lost this game, but we can win the next one because we've gotten better. Remember that always. Yeah. 
and with bad morale, it, it's it's difficult also to turn around. And uh, of course, there is no company in the world that has amazing quarters every single time. So it, it's really about being able to stay humble when we are at the top, and at the same time, don't feel miserable when we are in the in the lows because there are something that we 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 still have the skills there. We still have. Uh, capacity to to turn around the business and being able to manage those emotional roller coasters of ourselves of our teams and i think that that's why we always need to work so much on ourselves first right because if we are not able to manage ourselves how are we able to inspire our teams to go through those those low moments right yeah and i look I, and then even if you do that, you, there's still a counterbalance to it. I work with a phenomenal VP sales, Tom Hedermans. He had 37 quarters in a row wow. beating his budget. But wow. the only thing he got out of that was he, he served our, our Middle East Africa uh, region. And he was, just, he was just like, oh, but Tom, you must be the biggest sandbagger of all to, to be able to do that. <laughs> Actually, him and his team were phenomenal, right? But even if you were phenomenal... He got that back to say, "Oh, you must be. You can do more for the business. You can do more for the business." But when I when I left the business, he had thirty seven. He never missed a quarter for thirty seven quarters in a row. Incredible! Well, is is there any function for from the function that you served before becoming uh, the CEO of, of LMS three sixty five? Is there any particular function that you you like a lot to work on? We we like to say that CEOs. Um, also need to be aware of their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and sometimes it, it's good for them to dedicate themselves to specific functions, of course, leading the business in an overall way, but but also adding value to a specific function of the business where they can make the difference there. It depends on the style of the CEO, of course. Yeah, I, I know that my, my strengths are in the product, in the sales and marketing area. So I tend to spend more time trying to optimize that and then understand that, for instance, the CFO realm is not my, my key strength over there. It's about building a strong relationship with, uh, with, the, right. with the CFO and making sure that you also, you're also very clear about what you're good at and what you're not good at. I know that getting the story together, putting all of these, again, I've had the fortune of even going all, I think many people, if they're your commercial, you get to stop at kind of, I mean, then maybe you've done marketing, maybe you've done pro, uh, sales. sales. Then I've actually been lucky enough to grow up in product. And then I've even had to deal with running development organizations, which just gives you a very, very broad perspective. And yeah. that you can only, I mean, that's my luck. That's my, my career that I've been able to do that. So those, those functions, I think I, I'm, I'm very confident, not I think. I'm very confident I can span that. I can add value. I can add value to the way you think about what products should be prioritized. And you can, that's something I've worked a lot on. And I've also worked on the business model, goes to go to market, all of those types of things, which also to me is, 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 is my backyard. And the same on, I mean, uh, on branding of the business, on the way we get to, 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 right. to go to market and all those kind of things. Those I know I can I can deliver an impact on, uh, structuring a finance function and all of that, making that a hundred times better. There's there's certainly a partnership that I need to build there, um, yeah. which I can't impact as much as as I maybe sometimes wanted to be able to. 
Yeah. And it, it's great that you have a great understanding of what I call the revenue machine, the retention engine and the acquisition engine and being able to really bring together the different languages of, of products, engineering, uh, marketing, sales, customer success, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, then the pillars uh, on, on, this, on the support of the business, which is of course the, the most important assets uh, that will add value to the clients, people. And, and then, as you said, finance, uh, one of the first jobs of, of the CEO is to ensure that the the company uh, never runs out of cash, uh, and and uh, that is um, funded for for the next um, stage of growth. Great. Any any other tips or any other reflections on on your role as a CEO or, uh, that that you would like to make before we move into the last segment of the show? No, I think I think I've tried to make as many of the points that I could. I think the one the one thing that we've missed out on is that when you scale the business models, continue yeah. to think that hey, you can actually add revenues to uh, the business by building additional products and product capabilities. Right. So you also have that dimension. And then one of the things we do work with, given that we're in a in a space that's fairly crowded, um, we do work also with. Um, more than I have probably ever done, we work with an, an M&A uh, mindset right. of, uh, of scaling to a second revenue stream. We do believe that we have the best uh, distribution engine in the industry, and therefore we can put more things on those rails. So think about that already early, because if you ask your product organization, build a new product, you tend to forget that the product organization can probably do that in a year. But if it's a different category, so if we broadened out to like performance management or mental health or skills yeah. management or whatever, it would take us a year to build the product, but then it would also take, take us a year to build market presence. And by the time you're done with that, you start to sell. So that's in year three. So when you plan your roadmap for things that, and I actually taking that back to how a lot of scale-ups talk about their business also to VCs. Then you talk about, oh, our existing product can make us go from a million to 10 million or something like that. Exactly. And then I need to build these three other products to get me to 50 million, which is right. the, the promise of, of the business plan that you put in front of them. Just remember if that business plan is from 2022 to 2026, which is what we would present to people, you actually do not have time to build three products because yeah. market them, Get them ready. I mean, get them ready, market them, and start selling them. Yeah. It's a two-year cycle at minimum, and to be, actually be someone in that new space, that's difficult. And I think we underestimate that. And I do think back to the VCs, they can smell that. So they basically give you a discount of that and say, "Ah, oh, that's <laughs> probably we'll take ten million off the top of that because if you say two or three products, one of them will never come because." Yeah. Again, I've managed roadmaps. Roadmaps are a difficult thing to manage. If you're ahead of your roadmap, I don't think that's ever happened. It's more things that will show up on a roadmap more times than than than, uh, than you want to, right? And I think that's a common thing across all businesses. It's a new startup, right? It's getting again into product market fit, in, in other words. And, and we know that getting into product market fit can take six months, 12 months, 24 months, we never know. That's much more the exploring stage uh, in terms of when, when we find product market fit, we know 
there is a little bit more of science about execution on getting from the one to 10, but getting from the zero to one, it really depends. Uh, and it's it's very unpredictable to, to understand how long it will need to get into, into the next stage. Cool, you're talking about something that is really a, a differentiation and very few scale-ups are able to do well, which was uh, the acquisition strategy um, that you have at LMS365. Any tips there on what you think uh, LMS365 is doing really well to make the, um, the M&A strategy work to, to grow the business? Yeah, so right now we've done these geog geography M&A transactions. Um, and again, it's part of this, how do you scale sales and sales capability and geography, right? Because it is actually one of the toughest things to do. You just think, oh, I'm just going to take the same approach put the same level of marketing dollars in and then I'll be in the US and I'll add four people to it and then I'm good, right? And you ask for $2 million in, in, in capital or something like that and you, you tend to forget how quickly that runs out. Um, so the way we've done it with, obviously Microsoft has like 100,000 partners or something like that. You can always find someone, whether that's in Spain, in Portugal, in US, in Canada, <laughs> anywhere where you could actually get your product in and, and, and get them to push that. The real trick here for the M&A um, is that most of these businesses are a services business. This means it's producing revenue through distribution of other people's product. They don't own intellectual property, anything like that. So in a normal mm -hmm. market, these businesses would trade anywhere from 1x to 3x ARR. Right. If you're a SaaS business, now I know the, the, the market has gone down significantly, but let's just for the sake of argument say that you trade anywhere between 8 to 12. I mean, in prior yeah. times, it might that might have been 25. Right. The, real, the real thing is, is the, um, the arbitrage that you can see there. This means that if you've given away, uh, not given away, you've, you've incentivized the, the, the partner to deliver mm -hmm. Uh, your product and allowed them to take anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of, of of the cut you're actually able to buy that ARR back uh, mm -hmm. at like one to two x maybe three x mm -hmm. but your valuation comes back at a um, at, at eight to twelve so it's a really good MA arbitration think that that's actually a mini scale of what you do as a private equity fund you find right. businesses with a lower multiple, you trade them into the business, and then you, and then you actually upscale your, uh, then you upscale your ARR. Obviously, the, the, the most amazing thing, and I don't think you can acquire that. I mean, there you have to either align with someone who knows what they're mm -hmm. doing, right. or, or you have to be really good at it. Because doing that within your own cash flow and your own balance sheet, which is what this business has done, requires a lot of skill it's not as easy as it sounds and it requires a lot of focus we are lucky enough that henry gebel who i have on uh, as chief strategy officer he helped the business as an outside advisor for the first two and then joined the business so we actually now have the firepower to execute this at scale um oh. but it's not an impossible task a lot of scale ups they just they see it as oh build more build more build more uh, expanding geographies, expanding geographies. You just forget that built means more people, means more time, means more things to manage, which means higher burn rate. More geographies means more people, more burn rate. If you miss quarters, you have a, an, an, an unbalanced, um, you have an unbalanced right. equation. 
And the last piece of buying your own distributors actually means before you buy them, because acquisition, I've been part of M&As as well, and some of those have a cultural clash and all of those things, that's mm -hmm. just different. But yep. here you actually know the people. For instance, our acquisition in Australia, which we completed uh, three weeks ago, we've known these people since seven, eight years. So do we know that they can sell? Yes. Right. Do we know they work with the rest of the organization? Yes. Do we know that there's a cultural fit? Yes. Do we know that this, I mean, we know that this will not break apart. And it's just a different way of seeing your, your geographical scale rather than if we had, again, if you and I would have put our heads together, hired the best person we could find in Australia, there's still no guarantee that that person would exactly. work the way yep. he or she worked in, her diff in a different company and delivered the results for us, right? Exactly. Super interesting approach, uh, faster and cheaper. And, and again, uh, an important element, uh, having the right person leading uh, that strategy uh, and understanding the business on how also to identify those acquisition targets that could really um, be a cultural fit and at the same time really add value to, to the growth uh, of, yeah. of the business. Super interesting approach, uh, amazing insights. Let's go into the last segment of the show where I ask you a, a quick question and you give me a short answer. And uh, let's go with the first one. If you'd have the opportunity to uh, have a coffee with uh, your younger self, let's say at the beginning of your life, more in the, in the scale up and, and startup scene, uh, what advice would you offer to your younger Rasmus? I was actually asked the same question when I was in our Bucharest office uh, last week. <laughs> and my answer to that is relax. I am enormously competitive. I compete at everything. I would compete with my grandmother in card games, everything. <laughs> also coming out, of, uh, coming out of university, you're thinking you know it all. You're ready to, to change the world, all of those kind of things. I have made all of the mistakes of sending emails to Nokia executives, telling them they were damn wrong about things that they, they thought they were, they were doing and having people call me and say, Rasmus, what are you doing? And one thing to have uh, take, take out of that is just take a deep breath, listen to other people and assemble your point of view. You want to be right. You want to be driving the, the um, driving the direction of whatever you own, right? Whether that's a sales or a marketing campaign or developing a product, you want to be able to set the tone. And sometimes, actually more times yes than, than no, listen to the people around you. People actually have interesting perspective. It may be that you are 100% right. It may also be that those people change your view 20% and the decision gets better. It might be that you were 97% wrong because you got different perspectives from someone else. And that's the relaxed part. Um, I think you start out in careers being very self-confident of all those things that you know and you need to decide. The more you listen to people, the better your decision gets. The more disagreements you agree to have, we talked about this, and then execute, the better your decisions get. Um, and that would be my absolute uh, advice to myself. Relax, take one more round and then make a better decision. Um, Great one. Which, which is something that comes with age probably. <laughs> what are you the most proud of 
on your journey so far? I'm the most proud of the fact that I've stayed true to myself. I've always been a team player. I always, I, people ask me, I always say I wanted to play midfield in, uh, in, uh, in any ball team. I've played a lot of basketball, soccer, all of those kinds of things uh, growing up. And I still see myself as the, as the holding midfielder uh, with a lot of energy. And I try to harness that and, and spend it in the right ways. But I've stayed true to being a team player. Um, I think the door is always open. If the team needs to run and get somewhere and my skill is what's required, I'll help the team. It's to make sure that you are part of the team and part of, of, of pushing it forward. I know that at some points I'll need to uh, take the captain's armband and, and make decisions. But for the most part, you are able to move the team in, in that way. And it also means for me, and this is probably what I'm most proud of, is believing in people next to you who may not even have seen their own potential. Um, I've seen amazing things happen if you believe in people, also at this, at this organization. People being willing to step up to not, it's not learn from me, but because what you really do is you guide people to find their own strength and believe in themselves. And that actually means you need to run less uh, in midfield when everyone else starts to step up. And that's not always just doing a lot of more practice. But that, I think, is, is the, I have no prouder moments, actually, than, than people coming back and say, oh, I was able to make this step up because of you or you helped me guide this or thanks for helping my career. I have lots of people I will say the same thing to in my career. Um, and if I can pass that on, um, that's what I would be most proud of. Even, and this is, this is maybe a bit weird, even when people have come and said, uh, I'll resign from the position mm -hmm. uh, working with me. But I've, my question will always be, have you gotten a, a job that's, that, that then fits your new ambition level? And if they say yes, it's a quick decision, discussion and let people go, set them free. And I've only seen people do amazing things also in their career going forward. And as I said, if they then write back and say, Rasmus, thanks for helping me, that's nothing I can be more proud of. It's amazing. Worst advice ever received? That, that's difficult because that's always, a, that's always <laughs> one of those. Uh, maybe some of those you just, you, you just shut up. I, I don't think that I've followed any advice where things have gone horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, I think most advice, at least again, try to process it and make your own way out of it. It's back to the relaxed piece. I don't think I've gotten an advice of taking 100% VC capital and then the whole thing has gone to, to, uh, to, to bits and pieces. I do think that there's a point in, in, in actually this whole stakeholder management that if the advice is everyone will be on your side as long as it's going well, that's yep. wrong. You still need to bring everyone along. Um, I think that that's the one thing I've I've had to overcome. You just have to overcome where people are in their decision process, and you're not always sure they're with you. Uh, I don't think I've ever gotten the advice that they always are, but it's one of those things you think and you 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 believe everyone's with me, until you need to put pen to paper and sign away a dilution, or you need to do something. Um, I think that's uh, that, that, that it's always a tough one because I haven't had any advice that 
basically sent me into a, an abyss of, hey, try to take something completely different that you don't know anything about. <laughs> and I've ended up there or just do this and, and it's ended up in the wrong way. So I, I don't think there's any particular piece of, 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 of bad advice. And, and if I may, I mean, I had yeah. a, what you could consider bad advice was a CEO putting, setting me down and saying, Rasmus, you're actually too clever for yourself for product management. Mm -hmm. You should actually try to be in sales. And you go, why should I that? Because you do the same thing you do as a product manager. You, you, oh, we can sell 10 million of this next year and all that back to, we talked about how it takes, how long right. it takes to scale a product. Move me to sales just to have to carry the bag and call a number, right? What are you selling next month? a million dollars yeah. two million dollars whatever that is and you tend to call i mean the immediate reaction is you call the budget right because you want to be good and i said i'm competitive so that's what i did and i got one of those like full gas sales reviews that were terrible right and then it's about mm -hmm. learning from that and coming back the week after and actually go okay this is what i can do this is what i'm going to do to to beat the budget and all those kind of things Right. So that could have been terrible advice. It's probably turned out to be one of the best pieces of advice and one, one of the pivotal moments in my career that that was done to me. It was not my decision. Um, but that's, again, a great leader, different style, very uh, direct leadership style that I could never re replicate. But it changed me in the way I think about business, for sure. Great story. And now the, the resources that you recommend, your favorite book? Uh, I actually, I actually have one that I go back to, which is actually a terrible one. It's, uh, it's the Prince by Machiavelli, because sometimes I do okay. believe that, uh, where we're at with the, uh, with the world right now, we have so many technology things and then still people writing about how you behave and how you try to get through organizations or societies 500 yeah. years ago is still true. And that's actually terrible. So I read it as an antidote to what I should be doing and just to, to kind of get through that. And then on my bedside table is, 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 is something on the other end of, of, of the spectrum. It's, it's, uh, it's the first expeditions to Mount Everest with uh, Mallory and, and, um, and those actually, I think are phenomenal in terms of scale up and startup and everyone right. scale up startup world should read this because, um, when you see the pictures, it's actually a book with both um, nice photos and everything like that. And yeah. when you see the pictures of, of Mallory and Irvine thinking they will get to the highest point of the world in tweed clothing, eating uh, sardines and beef jerky, smoking <laughs> pipes on the way, and then thinking that that's where they will be going. I think that has the antidote to the Machiavellian society. It actually has this optimism. It has a belief. It has something. This has never been done before. And you do it with the scrappiest tools, right? And you still, Amazing. they were, I think they were the year before they, they actually died. They were within like 200 meters of the summit. A vis, they were, had a visual 200 meters below the summit. That's how close they got. And only 40 years later, you actually got to the summit, right? right. It just says something about that scale-up journey where you can find inspiration in that whole time, Shackleton expedition, all of that. I think that time in terms of exploration matches very well where we are today with SaaS and founders and, and yep. pushing boundaries with scrappy tools and still sometimes getting <laughs> exactly. within, sometimes almost making it. And, and then the mystery of did they really make it? Uh, I, unfortunately, I think we have kind of figured that out, but 
still, if you make yourself believe that the mystery is still there, the way these guys have thought about startup journeys and right. the literal, I'll start here and I want to get to the top of the mountain. Yeah. I would love, love to sit in that room and hear the conversation. We're going to go. <laughs> We're ready. <laughs> they, they didn't look fit at all. And you go compared to modern day standard, they didn't have the down jackets, anything. Still, they believe they got Incredible. super close to it, right? Great inspiration, great recommendations. Uh, favorite movie or series, as you wish, as you prefer? I, it, 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 for, for Dane, I will say that the, the whole Viking series has done a lot for living <laughs> okay. your own history and all of that. Uh, <laughs> I still, uh, to this day, I am, uh, I think still the, the number one for me would be, uh, would be Top Gear because it shows what a team can do. There is right. nothing in that TV show that is that is car that that really is cars. People tune into that because it's a great team. They have a great banter. Mm -hmm. They have a great sense of of togetherness. They know their roles. They play their roles well. And again, if you think about that in context of of a startup team, if you have that, if you have are able to laugh together, make mistakes together. Um, still overcome that and go on journeys. Again, they also go on journeys where you think, okay, we're going to go in crappy cars across the Andes mountains. Yeah. And they try this, right? You actually get the sense that these three belong together. They are the right team. They're a great team together. And this means you could actually go back and watch an, uh, a 2002 review of a Nissan Micra with those three guys. It would still be fun. And you would still sense the team because yeah. I think that's, again, if we just translate that to our own world if yeah. you could show up as that team in front of a vc remember yeah. that a vc will look a lot at the team and the team togetherness the team support for each other the understanding Absolutely. of roles together uh, the longevity of what you produce regardless of whether the outcome is positive or negative um that i actually think symbolizes a lot of uh, a lot of great things and then it's just a great show and it can still make me laugh it can still make me cringe and, and all of those types of things great one and and the final one the favorite podcast excluding this one <laughs> i will i will say this i'm actually not a huge podcast fan that's fair. Uh, so most most of my things i i actually do reading uh i tend to be more if i'm on a journey I tend to spend more time on uh, listening to music and I tend to spend more time reading. So uh, I will, uh, I'll say, even though I can't say this one, I'll absolutely say this one. <laughs> Thank you, Rasmus. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we wish you to come back to share the journey from 15 to 30 and later from 30 to 50 and from 50 to 100. That's what we wish uh, for you. And thanks again for making the time and for being with us today. Mike, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And to our community, we keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life easier going from 0 to 1, 1 to 10, and 10 to 100. See you soon, and keep scaling. <music>